the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, Now, Alan Dempsey uh, sits in the control room. He's the engineer. He gets us on the air. And Andrew Herdliska is the producer. Michael Brown joins us in the first segment, president of Fire School of Ministry. He has a daily syndicated talk radio show, The Line of Fire. His new book is out, Job, The Faith to Challenge God. Michael, welcome. I'm so glad that we have a chance to visit here. Delighted to be with you, Pat. So what is it about the book of Job that has fascinated you so much, Michael? Yeah, you know, it says at the beginning of Job that there's no man on earth like him. That's what God says about him. And, and in many ways, there's no book on earth like like the book of Job. I remember as a fairly new believer when I came to faith in 1971, even though I was raised in a Jewish home, I wasn't religious, so I didn't grow up reading the Bible. And now, 16, 17 years old, coming out of heavy drug use and the whole rock scene, I'm reading the Bible. I get to the book of Job. And, of course, the beginning is is amazing, this challenge between Satan and God about this man, Job, and Satan attacks him and takes everything he has, but he still worships God. And then a dialogue ensues, and it's Job speaking and then different friends speaking. And Job would say his piece, and I'd say, amen, I I agree. And then one of the friends would completely rebut Job, and I'd think, well, yeah, I agree with that. And then Job would rebut the friend, and I'd think, Yeah, I I agree with that. So I thought, this is odd, because they're each contradicting each other, but I agree with each one. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't figure out what to make of it. And then another guy shows up out of the blue, Elihu, and then he disappears, and he speaks a lot. And was it good? Was it bad? When I would teach on Job at Bible school beginning in the 80s, I would assign the students to write a paper on this guy, Elihu, and, and, and give their assessment, and every year without fail... The papers were completely split down the middle, half saying he was amazing and half saying he was a jerk. So that was Mm, Elihu. And then God comes in and speaks, and instead of answering Job's questions, he begins to talk about nature and his creation and the beauty of it and some of the odd things about it, you know, and ostriches and horses, and, and, and then begins to talk about these creatures, behemoth and leviathan, and then Job recants everything, and repents, after which God says to the three friends, I'm angry with you because you didn't speak what was right concerning me, as my servant Job did. So what did he say that was right about God? And then God restores everything to Job and doubles it, and he lives happily ever after. So it's it's quite an extraordinary book. The things Job says about God where he attacks him, and he ends up repenting for that, and yet the things he says about God that challenge him that, that are right things. And then the whole question of why do righteous people suffer, and what are right and wrong reactions to suffering, it, it makes Job an amazingly unique book. And then you add in the Hebrew is notoriously difficult. So the most difficult thing about the whole book for me was to write a new translation of the book of Job. So you put it all together there's nothing like Job in the literary universe. I want you to talk about this, Michael. Uh, the Bible calls Job blameless and upright. And just because he feared God doesn't mean he didn't suffer. Uh, what can we learn from this? Yeah, we can learn that sometimes inexplicable things happen to godly people. That there are people who mm-hmm. love the Lord and that are really serving God. And for inexplicable reasons... Suffer. See, we like to have nice little categories. If I'm godly, everything will go well. If you're wicked, you'll be immediately punished. And things don't always fit in those neat little categories, and that often rattles us. 
And, and what happened with the friends is that everything fit in one or two categories for them. Either you're righteous and blessed or you're wicked and cursed. There was a slight possibility that you could be righteous and sin, and God was chastising you and disciplining you, so you might suffer some, but it had to fit in one of those two categories. So when they saw Job suffer the way he was suffering, the initial thought is, well, there must have been some secret sin, some issue, and God was judging him. When Job began to rail against God and rebuke the friends, then they thought, oh, oh no, it's actually worse. The man is downright wicked. This only happens to wicked people. Job, on his part, knew that he wasn't wicked like that, and he didn't deserve that kind of suffering. So what Job did was accuse God of wrongdoing. So the friends accuse Job of wrongdoing, and Job accuses the friends of wrongdoing because they each had their particular categories and didn't know what was happening behind the scenes. Now, I want you to get to the next topic, Michael, and that is, in this story, Satan has access to God. What does this tell us? What's that mean? All right, so first thing, who is this character called Hasatan? In Hebrew, literally, the adversary or the accuser. Mm-hmm. He appears with the, with the sons of God, meaning with the angelic host. And, and uh, as we look at this character, when God says, well, where have you been? He, he answers, it, it, it's implied in the Hebrew. You have to kind of read between the lines a little bit. But he answers so much slight, slight like, no, just going all over the earth. Everything looks good to me. That, that's what's implied. In other words, yeah, I'm st- staking out everything on the earth, and human beings are pretty wicked, and I don't really see anybody that, that loves God or serves God, and that's why God says to him, well, have you considered my servant Job? So God brings Job to Satan's attention. And reading it uh, in the most natural way of understanding it, this is the same one that we call Satan in the New Testament or the devil. So how is it? that he had access to God? Does he have access to God today? Can he go before God's throne and accuse us? Revelation 20 says that he accuses us before, uh, excuse me, Revelation 12 says he accuses God's people before the throne day and night. But that could well be his activity before the cross and before the resurrection. In other words, while Satan is the accuser, and while Satan will lie to us about ourselves and will lie to others about us and will lie to us about God, we can argue that since the cross, since the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan does not have access into the throne of God anymore. And we have authority over him in Jesus' name. At the same time, the New Testament tells us that we are in constant conflict with Satan and that there is suffering persecution, opposition in this world that we will suffer because we're in a battle with the enemy. But the Old Testament perspective emphasizes God is God over the whole universe, and he's God over the whole angelic realm, including fallen rebellion, rebellious angels. And you even have an account in, in uh, 1 Kings, the 22nd chapter, where, where God is saying to the angelic beings, who's going to go and deceive Ahab? And one spirit says, I'll go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. It could be that was a demonic spirit, that that was a fallen angelic spirit, but that God oversees the whole universe, and if he wants to use the devil to do his dirty work, he can do that. My guest is uh, Dr. Michael Brown. He's in Concord, North Carolina. Uh, His book, Job, The Faith to Challenge God. Now, you say the book in the book, that it wrestles with fundamental issues of human suffering, divine goodness. So the big question, Michael, what do we learn about God from this story? Mm. Yeah, many people, when they go through terrible suffering, draw wrong conclusions about God. Uh, People become atheists because they went through terrible suffering. And and look, it's understandable, because we think, well, if if that was my child, I wouldn't let my child suffer like that. If, if I had the power and wisdom to create a universe, I wouldn't create a world in which there's so much pain. And, you know, what do you do if you're a Christian? 
and maybe you have a child that has a, a an incurable illness, and you pray and you fast and you weep and the, and you get the elders to lay hands on your child, and the child remains sick, and the child ultimately dies. What do you conclude about God? That he takes delight in this? That he's somewhat of a sadist? That that he's lacking in power? What do we conclude about God? And and the first thing that we see is that the Bible understands our predicament. In other words, God put books like Job in the Bible, and books like Ecclesiastes in the Bible, and Psalms of Lament in the Bible, to let you know you're not alone. My guest, Dr. Michael Brown, and when we come back, I want Michael to pick up right on that last thought before this break. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, folks. And uh, right here, the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Dr. Michael Brown is with us. The book, Job, The Faith to Challenge God. Michael, I want you to pick right up on what you were talking about before the break. Yeah, one Old Testament scholar once said that if you want to make a complaint about God, you have forms already filled out waiting for you in the Old Testament. So you're not alone in going through these anguishing questions. And God himself wants you to know that you're not alone, that he understands where sometimes it looks as if he's not good. Sometimes it looks as if he doesn't care. Sometimes it looks as if he's indifferent or there's something else going on that seems contradictory to his nature. But the end of the book of Job reiterates the goodness of God to us and the faithfulness of God. And it says, even though you may go through hellish and inexplicable trials in this world, if you'll hang on and continue to worship God, even in the midst of your pain, he will bring you through. He will turn what was meant for evil for ultimate good. Job ends up saying in Job 42 to the Lord, I heard of you by the hearing of your ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, I have a relationship with you I never had before. And then he gets twice of everything back. So double what was taken from him, but he lost 10 children. How do you pay that back? Well, he gets 10 more children, not 20, which is now a hint of the world to come. So even if certain things can never be retrieved in this world, in eternity, God would manifest his goodness. The end of the book of Job is a disappointment to some scholars, uh, especially post-Holocaust, where you have this terrible tragedy and, and now Jewish scholarship realizes there's not always a happy ending, or Jewish scholarship reiterates there's not always a happy ending. And yet the book of Job says, no, there's always a happy ending in God, either in this world or the world to come. And even some of the ways that God reveals himself in nature, the intricate way he does things, the careful, beautiful way he does things, where he pours out rain on some desolate place that no human being will ever see to feed the plants. I mean, why? Because that's the kind of God that he is. His beauty, his majesty is revealed to Job. So rather than God bullying Job, which is what Job thought was going to happen, because he wanted to have his audience with God. I'm going to have it out with God. I want a trial, because I'm not guilty. Uh, And he was afraid God would overwhelm and intimidate him. What God did was overwhelm him with a revelation of his beauty and his majesty and power. He didn't bully him. He showed him who he really was, and all Job could do is worship. One last point on this. God never explains to Job why he suffered. He never tells him about Satan or anything else, but he reveals himself, and that's another big issue. Many times we won't understand why we went through something in this world but we'll encounter God, and when we encounter him, all is well. Michael, Job's oft-quoted phrase, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. As I understand it, it's based on a false idea. Uh, Where does Job go wrong in his thinking? Can you expand on that? Yes, so Job 13.15 is is one of the most important passages in the Bible, and yet... There are some issues in the, in the Hebrew text that uh, allow you to translate it in several different ways. On the one hand, we know that Job was maintaining his confidence. He wanted to have an audience with God. But if you look at the second half of, of the verse, he says, Nonetheless, 
I'm going to argue my ways before him. So Job is, is expecting to die. Uh, that is, is true. But now he's saying, even if I die, I'm going to argue my ways before God. And then the next verse says, and this will be my deliverance, my salvation, because no one godly person could come before him. So if I could just get in his presence and argue my case, then I could prove my righteousness. Now, the, the error in the thinking is that no human being can be righteous before God and vindicated before God. But what's right in his thinking was he knew that he was not suffering for his sins and that something was wrong somehow with the picture. So he wanted to make an appeal to God. And I actually translate it differently in my commentary, which is a whole other subject. I have these, these special in-depth essays at the back, in the back of the book where I give theological reflections or deal with philosophical issues or get in real depth as some of the verses say. But in short, the subtitle of the book, The Faith to Challenge God, is that Job rightly knew that if God was the God he believed he was, that something was wrong with the picture, and therefore God had to act differently to be in keeping with his character. So on the one hand, Job wrongly accuses God of being a monster, and wrongly accuses God of, of causing wickedness on the earth and turning a blind eye when people suffer. But he rightly says to God, you cannot be this kind of God because I know that there's justice in your universe. And that was a righteous appeal in the end. Michael, here's another uh, phrase, uh, a verse from uh, Job. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, can you uh, expand on that? Yeah, we even sing it. There's a, a famous worship song today where we sing those words. On the one hand, in Job 1, when Job loses everything, and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, may the name of the Lord be praised. When he says those words, they're words of great faith. He has been tempted and tested. Uh, Satan, the adversary, has said to God that he will deny you to your face. You just... You just take away everything from him, and he'll deny you, he'll curse you, he doesn't. He worships. And that should be our attitude. No matter what happens, I'm going to worship God, I'm going to love God, I'm going to honor God. On the flip side, as we look at the larger picture here, we realize that it wasn't God who took away, but the adversary, Satan, who took away. So there's a flip side to this. Yes, we worship and say, God... You're in control of everything, ultimately. I'm going to worship you. In the second chapter of Job, he says, what, we're going to receive good things from God only and not bad things? I'm, I'm going to worship God either way. That should always be our posture. So something terrible happens, and we say, God, I don't understand, but I praise you, and I worship you, and I know that you're good, and know that you're faithful. But as we have further spiritual insight, we might see that we're in the midst of spiritual warfare, and that it's Satan who's attacking and Satan is taking away, and we can stand with God with the benefit of being this side of the cross in the resurrection. We can stand with God against the enemy, against the thief, and, and take those things back in Jesus' name. Michael, at the end of Job is when God steps in and that set things straight. So what does he say that can be helpful to our own lives? Yeah, well, first... We know very little. Let, let's get that straight. Mm -hmm. we, we know so little overall in terms of how the universe operates and how God works that rather than judging God when we go through difficult situations, it's better to zip it. It's better mm -hmm. to say, God, I'm hurting, and I don't get this, and I just need help. Better to say that uh, than, than to, to accuse God of wrongdoing. So one of the big lessons of Job, you know, have you ever seen a wild mountain goat give birth? Like, actually, no. Okay, were you there when I created the star? Well, actually, no. So zip it. There's a lot we don't understand. That's one thing. A second thing is we need an encounter with God more than we need answers. A third thing is Job was right in, in speaking about God in ways that can make us uncomfortable. He made an appeal. He said, I, I know my Redeemer lives. He, he said, somewhere in heaven, there's got to be a mediator. 
there's got to be someone that can plead my cause. And he was convinced it would be there. In a sense, he was glimpsing at Jesus without even knowing him. He was glimpsing at the Lord's role. And, and he, was, he was saying that somehow justice and goodness has to prevail in God's universe, or he's not the God we believe him to be. So we can rightly appeal to God the same way Abraham appealed to God and, and, and said, are, are you, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked when he appealed for Sodom and he appealed for Lot? Well, won't the judge of all the earth do right? And we can make that same appeal to God. Lord, I know that you're good, and I'm appealing to you to do what is right and to act in accordance with your nature. These are the, some of the things that, that we can do, learning from the book of Job and understanding who God is and how we should relate to him. Michael Brown's book is out, Job, The Faith to Challenge God. So, Michael, in Job's case, blessing follows suffering. Do you think this is a distinctive pattern for all of us? Uh, Yes. If we will honor the Lord and walk with him, no matter why we go through something, we will find that God is a redeemer. If I sinned foolishly, because of which calamity came in my life and tragedy came in my life, as horrible as it is, if I'll humble myself before God and learn from it, I can become a better man. That loss can strengthen my character. Perhaps we're suffering because of obedience. Perhaps the reason we're going through hard times, people rejecting us, persecution coming, Satan attacking us, is because we're doing the right thing. That now encourages us, and we grow through it. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating thing, but often the very worst things we go through, the things that we never want to go through again, are the things that make us who we are. And the things where we say, I would never be where I am today in God. I would never be where I am today in ministry had I not gone through that living hell. I don't ever want to go through it again, but I'm closer to the Lord, I'm a better person, and I'm more blessed because of it. Truly, that reflects the nature of God. It says that Job's three friends stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Uh, What's that tell us about Job? Well, on the one hand, you could say that he was self-righteous or that he, he thought too highly of himself. But on the other hand, God had said about Job, there was no man on the earth like him. Mm. So this man, Job, was extraordinary. When you read Job 31, you realize none of us are in Job's league. None of us lived the way Job lived in terms of that level of character and that level of integrity. And and the thing that Job would not let go of was his own integrity. God says to Satan in chapter 2, he's still holding fast to his integrity, even though you're moving me to destroy him without cause. And in fact, Job did not deserve the sufferings that came his way. So in that respect, he was righteous. But when he made himself more righteous than God, that's when he erred. That's when he was mistaken. In his misery, Job seems to express what many of us feel in difficult times. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. What's the lesson for us, Michael? The lesson is that sometimes that's how it's going to feel. Sometimes you're going to soak your your pillow with tears. Sometimes it's going to feel like God's a million miles away, and God put that in the Bible to tell you that sometimes you go through it. Look, if a, if a woman didn't know what labor was, she's pregnant, but she's never been around someone having a baby, and she's never been taught, she's thinking it's the end of the world. She's thinking, I'm dying. She's thinking it's over. But actually, it's the most important moment of her life. She's about to give birth to a child. So the book of Job is telling us, yet yeah, these things exist in this world. But if you'll humble yourself before God, rather than producing death and destruction, they'll produce life, they'll produce hope. Again, to everyone that's listening to us right now that's going through living hell, God understands, Job understands. You say, but why doesn't he do something now? Honor him, worship him, and he will bring light out of darkness. He's faithful, and he'll prove his faithfulness. Here's one for you, Michael, in closing. Was Job dismissive? Or defiant? 
Mm. Job was defiant, and part of that defiance was sinful in that he falsely accused God. But part of the defiance was because of his extraordinary integrity. He could not deny what he knew to be true about himself, and therefore something was wrong elsewhere. He just didn't understand the activity of Satan behind the scenes. And Pat, I I want your listeners to know that when I wrote this commentary, which was the work of of, uh, several years and then of many years of study and reflection, when I submitted it to the publisher, they said, wonderful, but you wrote for two audiences. You wrote for scholars. You wrote for your average reader at the same time. You need to choose one or the other. So what we did is we took all of the scholarship, but we simplified it. So any serious student of the book of Job, any pastor, any, any Sunday school teacher, anyone in Bible college, or just someone who loves the Word, anyone that loves the Word can profit from this commentary because we wrote it in such a way to make it accessible to everyone. Michael Brown has been our guest. We've got more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Uh, We'll be right back. Our guest in that first segment, Michael Brown, talking about his new book, Job, the Faith to Challenge God. We we go from Concord, North Carolina, where Michael lived, out to California, and uh, we've found the home of Otis Ledbetter, author mm-hmm. of Soul Hunger. Boy, that sounds enticing, Otis. How are you? Nice to catch up with you. You know, I'm doing good, and I'm honored to be with you. You say that hunger isn't a weakness, it's a force. Uh, what does yeah. that mean? What does that mean, Otis? Well, um, what we need to understand first is at birth, each of us possesses God-given hungers, which we spend our lives trying to gratify. Mm. Um, the uh, when, you, when I was going through Galatians chapter 5, I've, I've, I've read it a thousand times, and when I was going through Galatians chapter 5, I got stuck this time on, on the two lists in there. The, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, because they just don't seem to belong in the same chapter. They don't. They don't seem to belong side by side. One is beautiful. That list of fruit of the spirit is beautiful. The works of the flesh. That list is like a bucket full of running over with human debris, and you kind of just want to skip over it. So I asked seminary professor, one of my seminary professors, I asked him, what do those two lists have in common? What do the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit have in common? And he, he looked at me like a calf looking at a new gate, and he said, absolutely nothing. And I said, well, it can't be, because God has them in the same chapter side by side. And before he puts those lists out, he says a couple of things to us through Paul. He tells us that the Spirit wars against the flesh, and the flesh wars against the Spirit. So what are they warring over? And I said, it's certainly not my soul. That's settled. And some people say, it's, they're warring over your mind. Well, that's pretty subjective. What specifically are they warring over? And um, I had people come to me as a pastor. I had people come to me, and they would say, uh, Pastor, I, I, uh, I read my Bible, and I pray, and I go to church. I do all these things. And uh, that you say, when you walk in the Spirit, you ought to do, but I'm still stymied, I'm stuck, I don't feel I'm where I'm supposed to be. And that scripture stopped me this time through, and so I put them on my wall, in big post-it notes on my, uh, in my office. On one side, the works of the flesh, on the other side, the fruit of the Spirit. Came in f- four months, every, every morning, I prayed over those lists that God would give me something. And the third list began to... Uh, uh, generate. If you look at them both, for instance, um, uh, these hungers begin to generate. If you look at the first fruit of the spirit, it's love. If you look at the first two works of the flesh, it's adultery and fornication. What we would call making love. Well, what is the hunger that would cause us to go to either one of those? And I wrote down intimacy or connection. We we need to be connected. And I did that through that whole list. And what came out. Uh, actually, I had about 45 um, hungers, but through some therapists and through some theologians, we began to reduce it until it was irreducible, and it became irreducible uh, at nine. And those nine hungers are intimacy, happiness, contentment, justice, 
control, respect, truth, achievement, and pleasure. So when you look at that list at first, when you see pleasure, that looks like a weakness. When you see intimacy, that looks like a weakness. When you see happiness, that looks like a weakness. Control, that looks like a weakness. And so some people uh, reject them out of hand because they look like a weakness, but they're not a weakness. They're a force. They drive you every day. They drive you uh, to choose between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Those hungers are ground zero in this battle. It's where, the, it's where the raging battle takes place every day. Max Lucado says it's like a train coming down the track, stops at your house every morning, you get on, and you can choose, you choose one or the other. Um, and so <clears throat> that's why I say they're not a weakness, they're a force. They drive you, really, where you want them to drive you is to the fruit of the Spirit. But our nature, according to A.W. Tozer, is our biases toward the wilderness. And we will tend to go to the works of the flesh because they're quicker and, uh, and they satisfy immediately. So that's why I use that word weakness and force. Uh, tell me this, Otis. What's the difference between a healthy hungry and an unhealthy one? Well, we, we have it right there in Galatians 5. We have two menus. <laughs> Which menu would you order off of? Uh, uh, the fruit, love, joy, peace, you know, long-suffering, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, uh, self-mastery, self-control. Or, or will you go to the other menu, the works of the flesh? A healthy hunger will go to the fruit of the Spirit. An unhealthy hunger uh, uh, you satisfy the hunger unhealthily when you go to the works of the flesh. But see, you see, there's a righteous prescription for every soul hunger, but there's also an unrighteous resolution. Now, uh, let's get to this topic. What happens when one of our hungers becomes out of balance? Well, that happens all the time, and uh, that's probably what drove me to write this book is because I saw so many people with their hunger out of balance. Mm. Um, if you if you take, for instance, uh, a person that wants connection, I mean, loneliness, Pat, loneliness is epidemic. Uh, they say it is, it is more of a killer than cigarettes. Mm. Um, and um, you, 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 we are, we need connection. We need intimacy. Larry Crabb, um, psychologist, Christian psychologist, wrote in his book, Connecting, that uh, he doubts that most of the people coming to the church that, that psychologists say have some kind of a psychological disorder is not that at all. It's just uh, you're dealing with a disconnected soul. And when you become disconnected and, and you isolate yourself, well, you become ineffective in everything you do, and, and according to science, you're shortening your lifespan. Um, but there's others. Uh, uh, for instance, I, uh, I, if I could just tell a story, I had a, a pastor friend of mine, and he allows me to tell his story. In, he's in the book, but it's not his name. Um, he, he built a megachurch up, uh, up in the Northwest, and... Um, I got a call from him one one day. I was just sitting on my couch uh, one Saturday. I was watching some football, trying to relax, and and um, it was him. So I answered it and I said, "Hey, what's up?" And he said to me, "He said uh, she's left me. They've been married forty seven years, and his wife, a pastor, his wife walked out." Mm. And while I was talking to him, the phone rang, call waiting, and it was his wife calling. So I hung up with him, answered for, with her, and she said, um, I am, um, uh, I'm leaving him, and um, there's no talking me into anything, so don't try to talk me into anything. They know I counsel a lot, so she was just setting me on notice. So in the process of it, I asked them both to take the evaluation that's in the book, in uh, the back of the book, your hunger evaluation, so you know your hunger. That gives me a starting place to know what you've been eating. 
what you've been feeding on. And so <clears throat> they did take it. And uh, he sent me his results. She sent me hers. She didn't give me permission. He gave me permission to use it. His hunger was achievement. He was told by his pastor that if he married her, he would never build anything. Um, and the, his pastor knew he was going to pastor. And uh, so he spent his life trying to prove his pastor wrong. So his motive was wrong in what he, what he was achieving. You see, um, uh, achievement, um, the hunger for, uh, to satisfy, uh, well, to satisfy that hunger, you have to realize that nobody will ever achieve greatness in the kingdom who pursues it while ignoring the needs of others, and that's exactly what he did. She told me that she said he's an angry man, and I'm not going to spend the rest of my life with him. I'm at least going to enjoy some part of my life. Been there in 47 years. Well, in his evaluation, anger did not show up at all. And I, we've been friends, and I've never seen anger in him. We've gone on vacations together. I've never seen anger in, inside him. So I, I didn't buy that. But in his, his number one hunger was achievement. And uh, I told him, well, he, he called me back. He said, hey, <laughs> I took this evaluation, and you got me down here with, with envy and murders. Um, he, he said, uh, what's up with that? I said, I don't have you anywhere. Those are not my guesses. Those are your answers. And so you have yourself there. And you have to understand, uh, Jesus set the record straight that, that murder doesn't stop any longer at the physical act. You can have heart murder. If you hate your brother, uh, there's murder in your heart. And um, so we talked about that. And he wrote something in, uh, he wrote a testimony in the book. It's worth reading that testimony because what, what he understood is, you know, um, a, a ambition. Some people get achievement mixed up with ambition. Um, ambition is not achievement. It's in the, as a matter of fact, ambition is in the works of the flesh. It's not in the fruit of the spirit. Ambition is fueled by, uh, when it's fueled by envy or, uh, um, um, envy is inherently selfish, so envy allows ambition to have unfettered access to any means imaginable to achieve a person's goal. And he wanted to achieve that goal so bad, he allowed selfish and naked ambition in, which is a work of the flesh, and um, he ran right over her. He, he, he treated her like a queen. He bought her anything that she wanted. She had access to anything. They, I thought they had a good relationship, but she saw it as anger, and it wasn't. It was selfish ambition that would run over somebody and hurt somebody just to achieve a goal. That, I think, uh, answers uh, that question real solidly, that, that one story there. Otis Ledbetter is our guest. We're talking about his book, Soul Hunger. Now, Otis, we all know that the need to control... Can be overwhelming. So, so when we become control freaks, uh, how does this impact our life? Well, the hunger for control was never supposed to be distorted so much so that it needs the works of the flesh to solve it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Galatians five sixteen says, "I say then, walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh." And the proper meaning of control. Um, it can be clearly discovered in the process of, of that spirit walk. You see, anger, the flesh has many preferred means of satisfying our hunger for control because it makes it makes everybody else fear our rage, and it seems like a shortcut to the means God's established to meaningfully um, uh, satisfy this hunger that's inside each of us. But the fruit of the spirit is kindness, and kindness does not control; it impacts. The Spirit offers kindness because it is an inner control. It doesn't seek to control others or, or other circumstances, but rather it seeks to control self. And when you try this fruit, you may never hunger for the distorted, refined control of anger and jealousy again. You see, anger, what, anger is to be put away from us, and that's generally people, when they, when they control, that's where they go. They're angry people. It makes them use their fist. It makes them do all kind of, of uh, unsavory things to control. But in Ephesians 4, uh, 31, uh, Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, uh, 
what I want you to do is I, 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 I want you to, um, this anger and wrath and, um, and clamor and evil speaking, put it away from you. Well, we don't do that, Pat. We go to management classes. We try to manage anger. And if you look, the only, the only work of the flesh, I think, that gets management classes is anger. Uh, you know, I don't hear anybody saying I'm I'm going to go, I'm going to go to revelry classes. Uh, you know, I'm going to go to <laughs> angry, angry, anger. He says he doesn't say manage your anger in that scripture. He says put it away from you. And I have people ask me, what do you mean put it away? How how can you put it away? And I say, well, you know, if if you left. Uh, uh, a couple of pounds of beef out on the counter before you went to vacation accidentally, and you came back from vacation, the house would smell, and what you would see on your counter is a maggot-infested uh, big piece of meat. And I said, if I said to you, uh, you need to put that away from you because that's harmful if you eat it, I don't think you would ask me, how do I put it away? My guest is Jay Otis Ledbetter. He's in California. We've got another segment with him. Talking about his book, Soul Hunger, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Otis Ledbetter, author of Soul Hunger, is with us. Otis, our search for pleasure often leads to negative consequences. So explain to us, when does our desire for pleasure uh, turn into a problem? And, And how can we know when it does? Um, this is a, this was a hunger when actually, Pat, when I put this on the list, when this stayed on the list, I almost felt sacrilegious Mm. because we have a tendency to think that if it's pleasurable, it has to be sinful. Mm. And that is, that is so far from the truth. Um, certainly there are pleasures that should be placed off limits from people. But in the general idea of pleasure, and even seeking it, it is nowhere prohibited in even a sentence contained in the Bible. And if you take a quick scan of a handful of verses, uh, it demonstrates it, First Timothy 6.17, it says, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. And I think my favorite in this is Psalm 16.11. It's the definitive verse regarding pleasures. David writes, you will uh, show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And that's a very strange declaration if God is against our pursuit of pleasure. Um, what isn't as easy to discern is that if the pleasures we seek are at God's right hand, then the means by which we um, realize them are they're much, much different from the counterfeit ones that's held out by the flesh. And the flesh holds it out and says, I can give you pleasures in drunkenness, the loss of any control. You know, when you get under the influence of anything, uh, you lose control. And generally, what you think are pleasures when you're under that are genuinely the off-limits ones, off-limited ones. And then there's revelries, which means partying, and, and all, all of that sort of thing. Um, and when, uh, when the flesh holds out these counterfeit pleasures, um, they look good. And they appeal to the flesh. And, um, you know, at first glance, uh, I'll tell you, as a matter of fact, uh, God said there is pleasure in sin for a season. Mm, but that season soon ends. And what... What God gives to us in the fruit of the Spirit is what we call uh, we, we call it self-control. I don't like to call it that. Uh, temperance, the King James Version has calls it temperance. I, I think when you look at it, what that word temperance means is not self-control but self-mastery. There's a big difference between self-control and self-mastery. I can say right now, uh, have self-control, and say, I'm not going to do that right now, and tomorrow I might do it. I might lose that self-control. But if, if, if I have self-mastery, that is an ongoing thing that reminds me that every good pleasure we seek is only available if it's pursued properly. 
Now, Otis, I want you to uh, dig into this one for us. You have a soul hunger test. So how does that work, and how can people find out what their greatest hunger is? We all have a dominant hunger, and um, Paul says it lay aside that sin, that weight that so easily besets you. Generally, that's a hunger that you tend to constantly feed with the flesh, and it's your dominant hunger. Um, my dominant hunger is contentment. And uh, <clears throat> so I know what I have to watch out for. And, and you'll hunger for all the rest, but you will have a dominant one. So there's a website. It's hungertest.com. And it is designed to mirror the 27-question evaluation that's in the book. But this one on social media is only 10 questions. And if you go in, if you take these 10 questions and answer answer them, generally I ask you to answer it with your first uh, with your first impression. If you think about it too long, you'll talk yourself out of it. Answer it with your first impression. When you answer the 10th one and submit that, it will automatically send you an email of, of your dominant hunger, the one that you're going to fight with the most, that one that probably causes the sin in your life that easily besets you. And then with it uh, will be a synopsis of the chapter that that hunger uh, that we discuss in the book, Soul Hunger. So I've done that. Thousands have taken the test. Um, and, uh, you know, we have we have the five love languages. That book has got an evaluation in it. We've got Personality Plus that has an evaluation of what personality you are. Are you speaking the right love language? Are in your personality, you know your weaknesses? I think we ought to know our hungers. And I think we ought to know them so that we can walk in the spirit and when the spirit wars against the flesh the flesh wars against the spirit that raging battle starts it's winnable with the spirit and if you know your hunger uh, it's easier to fight you know it's hard to fight a faceless uh, enemy and that hungertest.com is the place to go it's free and it's private um none of this goes to anybody else it it comes right back to the person that takes it i want you to talk for a few minutes about one word. It's called justice. And you write about yeah. it in your book, uh, this whole yeah. idea of justice. Uh, can you expand on that? <clears throat> um, basically, what I say in there is justice by any other name is still defined as justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I say, I didn't, I didn't know justice had so many children. You know, there's criminal justice and reparative justice, restorative, retributive, social, all kind of hyphenated justices, and just asking which justice do you want today, I think it's like asking which slice of the same pie would you like to have today. Justice by any other name is still justice. And there's only two. Uh, it's only used twice in the Bible, and the words for it is um, mishpat, and that's, uh, that's um, a justice where the wrongdoer is punished. And then the other one is tzedakah, uh, and it is a cleansing justice. And God means for us uh, to cleanse ourselves with this uh, and have this tzedakah. And so if we have that, um, all you know, this rectifying justice isn't needed because we have control uh, in ourselves. In other words, we're not, what we're not doing is, um, uh, you know, asking questions like, uh, that, when justice doesn't come, we ask questions to God like, why does evil prevail? Prevail? Why can't right get the upper hand in this world? What's the problem? There seems to be so much wrong. Who's there to make it better? And we need to understand that God did not create the world so everything would be equal, but rather so everything embraced equity. And that's the kind of justice God says. In Micah 6 eight, he says, this is, what, this is what's required of you, that you love mercy and that you do justly, you do justice, and you walk mm-hmm. humbly before your God. And that justice there is at Tzedakah, which is the cleansing justice. So no other justice is needed. And that's, you know, and that's the word from the chief justice who said that. Otis, um, <clears throat> talk to us about a hunger for achievement. Uh, is that, uh, that's... Uh... Always, I've always viewed that as a good thing. Can it get out of control? 
it, it absolutely can uh, uh, when when you go to the flesh. You know, an achievement in the flesh is envies and murders. Um, and, um, you know, when uh, when achievement is fueled by the flesh, envy and murder, it becomes ambition. And envy then allows it to have unfettered access to any means imaginable to achieve your goal. But um, gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness refuses to pursue earthly achievement at the expense of others and eternity. Gentleness, gentleness is an absolute necessity when pursuing eternal achievements because it means it's the means by which we pursue them, and it determines if we achieve them at all. Eternal achievements make the how a non-negotiable priority, whereas the flesh, you know, it rarely concerns itself with how earthly achievements are realized. The importance there is just achievement. That's the fleshly. But gentleness, on the other hand, is, is the Spirit's counterintuitive means to achievement that is at once it's powerful and effective while valuing the people in our lives above all. My guest has been Otis Ledbetter, Clovis, California. Soul Hunger, the name of the book. We've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Well, folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Michael Brown, in that first segment, talking about his book, Job, The Faith to Challenge God. And then Otis Ledbetter uh, filled us in on his book called Soul Hunger. You may have heard that we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and we need your help. Go up to the website, it's orlandodreamers.com, and and just register that you think it's a good idea, and at some point you might have an interest in a season ticket plan. Uh, We need to show Major League Baseball that Orlando is the best spot uh, to put a new team. So we need your help, orlandodreamers.com. We'll be back next week. We'll have more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101, The Word, in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.